This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's been a while since we talked about the education bill, which is going to drive students and professors away from Ohio. We're talking about it on Today in Ohio. It's the news podcast discussion from cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston, and let's get to it. Jerry Serino's higher education bill to make college campuses in Ohio more conservative, a bill that many say will greatly devalue state schools and drive people elsewhere, is getting closer to passage. Laura, what happened this week and what's next? It is out of committee and on its way to a full House vote. Now, we don't know that it has the votes to pass in the House, but the House Higher Education Committee voted eight to seven on Wednesday morning. So that's a really close vote for a predominantly Republican body. This is a mashup of all sorts of pr- proposals that address diversity, equity and, in- equity and inclusion programs, campus speech policies, American history, teacher evaluations for bias, collaboration with Chinese scholars, and it's only affecting public universities in Ohio. It combines all of these concepts with this language, some of it written verbatim from model legislation that were put out by conservative organizations. Yet Jerry Serino and the people who back this bill say this is for free speech. This is for open learning so that no one teaches you to teaches what to think they teach you to think but it is it's just so blatantly obvious that this is a conservative ploy and students are really mad there's this ohio student association that says we have been protesting this you say this is for the students we don't want it and they're calling on jason stevens to make sure it doesn't pass Look, they they say it's about free speech because they're right out of Orwell. This is from the fringe side of the party, the one that really wants to get rid of democracy and bring in fascism. It's a ridiculous move. There is nothing about this that's necessary. And, you know, Jerry Serino doesn't even have the ability to write original legislation. He had to go get it from all sorts of other places because he's not creative enough to come up with it on his own in this run down the road to kind of destroy the state. This will definitely persuade smart students not to come here. And it'll probably dissuade professors from wanting to come here. These are draconian rules that will stomp out open discussions on campus. Professors are already talking about that they're afraid for their curriculum. Like they're worried that if they say certain things in the classroom now, they're going to get canceled because of this ridiculous march toward shutting down everything we used to stand for. So let's talk a little bit about what it says. And let's point out again, this is lobbyists writing bills that affect Ohio's people. This is not governing for your people. This is governing for your party and and the lobbyists. So it says schools could not require programs or training on diversity, equity, and inclusions. They could get an exemption if requirements are necessary to qualify for a grant or cooperative agreement. But you can't make people take diversity programs. They would be required to punish students, faculty, and staff if they violate, quote, intellectual diversity rights of another individual. I don't know. That sounds really scary to me. I don't know what that means. That's Teacher the chilling element. 
That's right. what exactly. that's what everybody is so afraid of that we're going to have a free speech police that clamps down on anything they disagree with. Man, this is right out of the authoritarian playbook. It's a very dangerous moment. And they say schools would be required to offer this mandatory American history or government course that includes reading assignments from the U.S. Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, Federalist Papers, Emancipation Proclamation, Gettysburg Address, and letting from Birmingham jail by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., which all obviously good documents, but plenty of kids read those in high school. And you should not be telling Ohio universities what they must, you know, basically you're telling Ohio students what they have to study. And we're at a point in college education where there are fewer students, there's just fewer kids, right? The birth rate has been declining for decades. There are fewer kids going to college. These schools are competing for students. I know some state universities have had a hard time with this. I know my school, Miami University, is cutting all sorts of liberal arts programs because they don't have the money for it because there's not enough kids that are interested in it. And so it's it's making these schools, which are already strapped for cash, and remember Ohio has decreased the amount of money that they've given state schools over the years, and college is still incredibly expensive. They're making it harder and harder for them to attract students. I mean, we schools are going to close, I think, or they're going to be offering very limited programs because why would you want to go to a state school in Ohio if Jerry Serino is telling you what you have to study? It's hilarious to me that they're making people read the founding documents of the country when the very nature of this bill flies in the face of them. Yes. It's, we, it's right out of Orwell. It's amazing that we're at this moment in this country. We've got a guy running for president, wants to be a dictator. I mean, he said it again yesterday. He'll be a dictator on day one. Like, ha, ha, ha. Isn't that funny? It's not funny. And there's Jerry Serino marching in lockstep. And I'm sure Jerry Serino supports Trump, right? So if this fascist kind of ideas flourish, then what's the next thing? It it does sound like they may not have the votes, that there are enough people in the legislature that realize this will make Ohio not competitive. We already have struggled to be competitive with other states. This is going to make it harder for us to compete, to thrive in the future. I think a lot of parents would persuade their kids, get out of this place, go to another state. You don't want to go to a school that is chilling your ability to think and speak. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Recreational marijuana is legal as of today in Ohio. You can start growing it in your home. Kind of amazing that I could say those words. I never thought this would happen. Both the Ohio House and Senate worked Wednesday to rewrite the law that voters overwhelmingly approved. The House wants to tidy it up. The Senate originally wanted to rip it apart and destroy it and throw the voters to the curb. But Lisa, they're coming to some kind of accommodation that's not nearly as dire as it sounded when the week began. Yeah, they certainly backed off of their draconian changes that they wanted to make to the recreational marijuana law, which does take effect today. So if you have any seeds or seedlings, you can start growing them. Um, The Senate and Governor Mike DeWine agreed to a plan that includes the following changes on House Bill 86. So they want to make the tax 15 percent. It was 10 percent in the statute. Recreational weed. This is interesting. Recreational weed would be available for immediate purchase at medical dispensaries as soon as the bill goes into effect, which would be 90 days after it's signed. They want to uh, allocate 15 million dollars a year to pay the cost of expunging pot charges in possession cases of two and a half ounces or less. That was not in the original statute. The THC limits, they backed off of that. Thank goodness. The THC limits 
limits would be 35% for flour and 50% for extract. So it's a little lower in the extract side, but the it, it hews to the original statute on flour. Up to six plants per household. This is a change. They used to say six plants per household, up to 12 if you have two adults in the household, but they're just saying six plants per household, period. Dispensaries cannot sell more than 10 milligrams a dose of THC or 100 milligrams per package. And in a press conference yesterday, Governor DeWine says he's urging the House to pass these changes. He says it's not everything he wants. Senator Matt Huffman, on the other hand, says the plant limits are too high. He says nobody needs a one and a half pounds yield, which they say the yield of six plants. He says that's clearly not for personal use, not even for Cheech and Chong. Yeah, although, let's face it, if people start to grow this, they're not going to get the healthiest plants. It's hard to grow things. And so where he's predicting they're going to have thousands of joints out of one crop, I'm not sure that's true. Look, I, I'm surprised where this ended up. It seems like mm-hmm. somebody must have stood up and said, hey, morons, the voters spoke. We'd have to be idiots to just throw the voters out the door because they'll come back and deal with us again and they'll make us pay. The voters are outraged that they even started down this path. So it seems like somebody must have raised their hand and said, morons, let's behave ourselves. Everything about this is okay. I mean, the six plant limit is fine. I mean, that is more than enough for anybody who wants to grow it. They don't need to grow 12 plants. So that's not hugely offensive. And like you said, the THC limits are fine. The idea that they're going to expunge the records, that's enlightened because that, mm-hmm. that we did a story saying that the legislature is going to have to do that to make life better for people. And they're doing it. And then the immediate sale. its I would have never thought they would say, yeah, let's get this up and running. Now they want the taxes. But still, pretty good pretty good place where we ended up. I was quite, I was pleasantly surprised. And yeah, that immediate sale like really perked up my ears. In the House, the Republican Jamie Callender um, of Lake County said he was the lead negotiator. He says they should have a final deal next week. Their main issues that they're working on now are tax rates and where the revenue goes. And we've seen how that's changed over the last couple of weeks, how they want to allocate that money. We had a story in the last couple of days in which advocates said, look, If they go the direction they're going, people are going to just drive to Michigan. They're not going to even buy Mm -hmm. the Ohio pot. And and good luck for the police trying to discern where you got your marijuana because it would be legal to possess it. I wonder if that scared them because that's true. People would go. Many people in Ohio who want to use marijuana live close enough to an adjoining state where they could just say, the hell with this. I'm not going to do this nonsense. I'm not going to buy near beer in, in the form of marijuana. And it just seems like somebody with a cooler head, got involved and persuaded the rest of the nuts to get to get some sanity. I'd love to know who did it. Certainly not Matt Huffman because he's still ranting, but was it Mike DeWine? I mean, did Mike DeWine and go, guys, the voters spoke. Stop. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see, you know, who was behind all these machinations. Yeah, I mean, you really do need to listen to the voters when they speak this loudly. It was stunning to me, and voters were furious that they were not going to. So we'll have to see what the House does. Very interesting moment. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Senator Sherrod Brown was hard on the Wall Street banks again. What is he blasting them for this time, Layla? Brown chairs the Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, and he's fed up with Wall Street banks that are complaining about proposed requirements that they retain more capital to make sure they can withstand losses from their risky ventures that Brown says don't help the economy at all. 
The proposal would increase the level of capital that banks with at least $100 billion in assets would be required to hold. Republicans on Brown's committee said that keeping more capital on the sidelines would diminish banks' ability to make loans. But Brown says these requirements would protect against the sort of risky trading and derivative activities that led to the 2008 financial crisis and that they would close a loophole that let banks like California's SVB hide behind accounting shenanigans that lowered capital requirements and contributed to their failure. He's especially angry that these banks are claiming that the requirements would hurt working families because there would be fewer dollars to lend or loans would cost borrowers more in fees. But Brown says nothing hurt working families more than the economic devastation of 2008. Yeah, I, this the sad thing is, Sherrod Brown's been very active in this area, and he's doing noble work trying to protect Americans. I just don't think people pay attention to this kind of thing. They're too busy paying attention to immigration or whatever Fox News is ranting about. And it's a shame because this is important stuff. The bankers all got away with it in, tw- in 2008. The guys that caused the big recession, none of them got charged. Sherrod Brown's trying to stop future distress and I just don't think people pay attention to it. I agree. And interesting that you bring up the the issues that that the Republicans are focused on because how about JD Vance taking this conversation in a completely different direction? He said during this meeting he started chastising the banks for getting involved in issues that have nothing to do with banking, guns and abortion and voter ID laws and he basically said if you want any help from Republicans on regulatory issues, you better stay in your lane on issues that don't relate to banking. And uh, it's almost felt like he was trying to <laughs> throw in those those hot button, you know, c- cultural issues in the middle of this pretty serious discussion about regulations. Uh, J.D. Vance is as far over to the fringe as you can get. I read a story this morning that, the, that Trump is looking at him as a chief member of his cabinet uh. to carry out <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, the test is loyalty. But Advance is saying to people he might want to stay in the Senate and be Trump's hammer because he doesn't represent Ohio. He represents Trump. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The staffing shortages at nursing homes are legion and two Akron facilities have a novel solution. Laura, how are they coping with it? They have robots. This is so cool. I love this story from Megan Becca, but it's Copley Health Center in the village of St. Edward. They're part of this pilot program facilitated by Direction Home Akron Canton Area Agency on Aging and Disabilities. That's a mouthful. And they got money to buy these robots. Their names are Eva and Rosie. They can sing happy birthday to residents. They can uh, meal a package and deliver meals. They can serve people water. They can clear up food trays and dining areas. And apparently the residents love them. They aren't met are not meant to replace human interaction, obviously. But one administrator was quoted as saying, I don't know how we would function without our robot at this point. Yeah. You just wonder, I mean, technology breaks down. I mean, you know, we all have technology in our houses. We're always dealing with breaking down and you wonder how often something as complicated as these robots would break down. And would it really be meaningful if a robot came to you to sing happy birthday to you, (laughs) happy birthday to you. Well, maybe other people would join in if the robot's just leading the singing and just starting it. I don't know. Have you? That's been where to we're Crocker headed. We're going to be led by robots. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, has anyone else seen the um, 
security robot at Crocker Park. No. It, it just it goes on the sidewalk and it kind of looks like R2-D2. That's the like white round one, right? Um, and just patrols. I think it like scans with a video camera, make sure there's nothing going on. It's so bizarre, but it's just like on the sidewalk. And and college campuses, I did not know this till I, I think Laura Hancock told me, they have um, food delivery on robots. So like if you order like Uber Eats rather than a person delivering it, because I think it's coming from a dining hall, it's coming from a little robot that's making its way across the sidewalks around campus. So I don't have a robot in my house, but I guess in like institutionally sized residence areas, this is becoming pretty normal. Could we program one to be the Senate president? (laughs) I thought you were going to say, could we program one to do your job? (laughs) Yeah, that Uh, too. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We got one more about Sam Randazzo following his indictment in the mammoth HB6 bribery case, which many, many people have sent notes about thanking us for continuing to mine this thing. They had forgotten just how bad Ohio government had become, and this has been a big reminder. So, Layla, how much time elapsed between when First Energy first admitted to bribing Randazzo and him finally getting charged? And what's the statute of limitations on this charge? Andrew Tobias tells us that the statute of limitations is five years for bribery, and that clock probably started ticking on January 3rd, 2019, when a $4.3 million bribe from First Energy executives showed up in Rendazzo's bank account as he was preparing to take the job with the PUCO. Andrew talked to former prosecutors to try to understand why this took so long to get to the point of indictment, despite the fact that the basic allegations have been out there in the public for more than two years. They said statute of limitations issues, potential plea negotiations, and and the time it takes to fully investigate probably all contributed to the timing here. Several former prosecutors said U.S. Attorney Kenneth Parker and his team likely have spent the last couple of years up strengthening their case against Randazzo, like uh, identifying potential witnesses and sorting them out from those who might face additional charges. The indictment does contain one new allegation, an accusation that Randazzo embezzled a million dollars from a former client while he was in private practice. So that probably did also add to the, the timeline here. Some have speculated that perhaps the feds were trying to negotiate cooperation with Randazzo and that those negotiations failed, which triggered the indictment. Another reason might have to do with the statute of limitations itself. The law says the clock doesn't start ticking until the last act in a sequence of events. That might be a matter of debate of when that sequence of events begins and ends for Randazzo. So prosecutors you know, might have pulled the trigger now because some of the acts involved predate the money showing up in his bank account and they didn't want to end up in that argument in the court about when the statute of limitations does end or you know, when that time frame begins. So, yeah. All that is horse hockey, right? Because First Energy admitted bribing him. They had the money in his control years ago. And negotiations don't take that long. You think about that. You don't want to go to prison, just string them along, and they'll just keep being strung along. I mean, you go to them with the deal, say, here's the evidence against you, bud. We got you. So here's what we'll do. You make the deal or you don't make the deal, and then you charge him. First Energy admitted it. You have the witness. Yes, that money that he has right there, we bribed him to do our bidding, and he did it. Here's the evidence he did it. Slam dunk. I mean, this has been as clear-cut a case as we've ever seen. I don't buy any of this delay stuff. And look, the embezzlement charge that's new, 
you can always amend an indictment if you find new stuff. But for the bribery, that that evidence has been publicly known for years. So I just think it's a, a failure of the Justice Department to do its job expediently. We would never accept this kind of delay from a county prosecutor. Although I do have to ask, where is the Brad Sellers case? <laughs> Maybe like right. A year we were just and a talking half. about that been, the other day. Yeah, it's, it's been, been with the Summit County Prosecutor too. for how long? And we still don't have a decision. It's like, how hard is this? The Ethics Commission provided you the case. You have all the evidence. Make the damn call. So maybe the county prosecutors are as slow as the Justice Department. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The first new skyscraper in Cleveland in a generation hit a milestone Wednesday. Laura, what was it? They topped out the Sherwin-Williams new headquarters, which means they reached the highest point that that skyscraper is going to be. This is an old fashioned kind of ceremony. They use an evergreen to mark it, which is neat. It's a 36-story building. It's two years since they broke ground. Well, quite almost. They broke ground in January 2022. So um, the new president, Heidi Petch, she's going to become the CEO on January 1st. Thank the construction crew for their dedication and coming to this milestone. So when this is all done, is there going to be a globe at the top with a big bucket of goo (laughs) smothering the entire planet? I do not believe I have seen that in the no. renderings for this building. No. So cover the but world. But it would kind of look like the Daily Planet in like Superman, right? If there was like a big globe at the top. Yeah, but then you'd have to smother it with paint because they maintain that logo of of cover the world. Well, Sherwin Williams is. I mean, uh, when we <laughs> we wrote about Heidi Pets becoming it, it, I looked at the history, and it is a long very traditional company. It had something like five CEOs in its entirety, like not a lot of change there. They're very traditional. Um, did you know Sherwin-Williams is the one that came up with painting school buses yellow in the 1930s? I thought that was fascinating. Huh. But so I, I don't really see them going and changing and, and coming up with a new logo. It's worked for them so far. I, <laughs> I see what you mean. It's kind of terrible, like especially in knowing what we know about the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, the building is very attractive. I think you're right. It does yes. have kind of a daily planet feel to it. So it's nice to see that going up. It took a while it's to gonna get have like a, a feel. A big pavilion on the bottom. So it's not going to just be like this monolith straight up from the sidewalk. There's going to be an entrance, you know, a welcoming entrance. I think the, I mean, it's going to look better than the parking lot that was there in public square for decades. So I mean, it's the first skyscraper to be built in Cleveland since, um, what was called the BP building, right? So, th- I mean, this is exciting. It, when it opens, that's a big deal. Yes, it is. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked earlier in the podcast about the coming shakeout of colleges because there's a dwindling number of students and people have many more options than they used to have, which is why Jerry Serino's bill is a dumb idea. But Layla, why is Baldwin Wallace University in such dire straits now that it has had to resort to hiring freezes and offering buyouts? They're facing a deficit, but it's unclear how big that deficit is. Records show that both enrollment and revenue collected from tuition have declined, with the university collecting $16.2 million less from tuition during the 2021-22 school year than it did five years prior. The university's president said that work to balance the budget is ongoing. 
and that has already greatly reduced the potential deficit from the initial forecast. This this story was actually initially broken by The Exponent, which is a student newspaper at the university. They reported in September that the university was expecting a $3 million deficit, but that it found itself in an even deeper hole than that. No one at Baldwin-Wallace will confirm those numbers for us because it sounds like they're not exactly sure how deep their deficit is. But the the school has already implemented a hiring freeze, as you said, and started a voluntary separation incentive plan, which the university also did during the 2019-2020 school year. In financial reports, the, the university said 44 employees took the buyout that year and just 14 of those positions were refilled. The school is also combing its programs to see what, if anything, can get cut. If they do cut academic programs, however, they have to let current students finish their degrees first. So if they they don't get this under control, or I mean, is this one of those colleges that we're talking about that could be in serious jeopardy? I, I mean, it's it's unclear how how deep their hole is at this point. Um, you know, but but yeah, I think all schools are kind of in jeopardy at this moment. You know, we, Chris, you and I were talking about this earlier in the week. There are a lot of forces at play here. First, you know, college is expensive as heck, and young people are starting to see alternative paths for their lives that let them bypass that debt. The default is no longer go to college, and that's especially true since wages have increased during the pandemic. So they're seeing other ways that they can make a living. And and second, you know, I read a bit about this also in the Baldwin-Wallace student newspaper, that colleges are expecting an enrollment cliff by 2027 that correlates specifically with a decline in the birth rate that happened during the recession of 2007, 2008. And, um, you know, a Baldwin-Wallace administrator talked to the, a, a Baldwin-Wallace reporter about that and said, if you look at high school freshman classes, you'll see that enrollment cliff taking shape, that graduating class of that year and the ones that come after it will be considerably smaller. So colleges have to really brace for that. And they've got to think about how to survive it. They've got to figure out how to capture kids with programs that are less expensive, maybe virtual, maybe offering vocational training, because these are young people who are pragmatic about the world. They don't want to take on decades of debt to study philosophy for four years. You know, we're gonna we're gonna dig into all of that soon with further reporting about how these trends are affecting young people. You just wonder if this is the canary in the coal mine, that this is the harbinger of the long predicted shakeout that's coming that schools like Lake Erie College and other small institutions really could find the they're at the end of their road because there just isn't the supply of students. You're listening to Today in Ohio. All right, Lisa, it's been on your list for all week, and now we get to answer it. And I don't really know if there's much difference between them. Maybe you do, but what are the best pancake houses in Northeast Ohio based on Yelp ratings? Well, I do want to say before I start out that I'm a waffle girl and not a pancake girl, but still, <laughs> I took issue that the fact that the original pancake house in Woodmere and Fairview Park did not make the list. I can't believe it. They're the only ones I know that make a Dutch baby. And they, also, anyway, they also make a gluten free, I think. And they do. Yeah, they they're do. very well known for that, I think. But not yeah. on the list. Yeah. So yeah, Cleveland.com worked with Yelp and we, you know, 
collaborated to get a methodology to find these best pancake houses based on Yelp reviews, Cuyahoga Lake, Geauga, Summit, Portage, Lorraine, and Medina counties. Number one in Cuyahoga, the Inn on Coventry on Euclid Heights Boulevard, four stars. Number two, Borderline Cafe on Detroit in Lakewood. Juneberry Table was number three at 3,900 Lorraine. Number four, Annie B. and Earl's at 4017 St. Clair. And number five was Scratch on Brexville Road in Independence. But also on the list are places I frequent. Jack's Deli in South Euclid was number 14. Grumpy's Cafe at number 12 in Tremont. And Big Al's Diner on Larchmere was number 15. Number one in Medina, Valley Cafe in Wadsworth. Number one in Giaga, another great restaurant, The Sleepy Rooster on Chillicothe Road in Chagrin Falls. Number one in Lake County was Petey's Family Restaurant on Lakeshore Boulevard in Willowick. Number one in Summit was Garrett's Mill Diner in Stowe. And number one in Portage was Over Easy at the Depot in Kent. So is this about the toppings? Because it's really kind of hard to screw up a pancake. They're very simple to make. So is, I mean, I can't imagine there's a wide range of quality between the basic pancakes. So is it about what they have available to put on top of them? Uh, well, or in them, you know, most of the pancakes I saw in the pictures were, you know, the they had chocolate chips or blueberries and some had ricotta cheese and some had, so I think it's what they're mixing with the batter that's, that's really making people, you know, because yeah, you're right. A pancake is a pancake is a pancake. But when you doll it up with something, you know, then it makes it something else entirely. So it's about creativity. It's about coming at this. Let's let's give the pancakes a different dimension, and that's what people are. But how are... could they not do the Dutch baby? <laughs> <It's>, come on. <laughs> Has anybody been to these places that we've named? Is it the tops? No, I've never been to any. All right, of them. well, you I'm have a, a mission I'm a now. You know, you've got to go. I'm sorry, Laura. I said I'm a bisquick pancake girl. Like <laughs> that's how I make my pancakes. You just add water. And you fry them at your kitchen. Oh, but Lisa, you guys what's need. The, what's the Dutch baby? Tell us. It's like a baked pancake. It comes out looking like a souffle that's collapsed in the middle. But but they they take the batter and they bake it, and it forms like a little concave in the center. And they put like blueberries or strawberries in there if you want it. But uh, yeah, you can actually and you so it's baked. It's not like on a griddle. All right. Well, y'all better get it together and get that onto the rating next that's time. That's right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Thanks for listening on a Thursday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. We'll be back Friday to wrap up a week of news.